This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Just give a little bit of background. I mean, um, I know not everybody here is from Chicago. We kind of did a version of this panel back in 2019, right after we had a wave of um, socialists elected to the city council here in Chicago. There was a really historic election that year. And I think 2023 is shaping up to be another one in terms of uh, a number of open seats on the city council. If you've been following our local politics here, there's been a mass exodus of a lot of the kind of establishment, machine-backed um, folks that are on the city council, um, perhaps not by coincidence, right after we've seen a wave of the left wing kind of growing stronger, a lot of the people that have been benefacting, uh, benefiting from you know a rubber stamp role on the city council are getting the hell out of there, um, and I think that really opens up a lot of opportunities to re-envision city government here. Um, and Anthony is a really great example of kind of the horizons beyond just city councils where socialists can try to take office and use points of leverage to implement um, transformational policies. And, you know, the, the, the reality is that even with a small block of socialists on the city council, and Carlos can talk more about this, but they've been able to band together, you know, they formed a democratic socialist caucus on the city council and really turned it from, as I mentioned, it was kind of a rubber stamp, certainly under Mayor's Daly and then Rahm Emanuel. The city council was largely used as a way to agree with whatever dictates the mayor handed down. And I think recently we've seen it turn into much more of a legislative body, um, trying to implement policies and change the direction of city government from a really neoliberal kind of corporate dominated um, vision of how city government runs to one that is more democratic and focused on the needs of, of working people. And, you know, we previously had a mayor here, the last time I talked uh, in 2019, we had uh, Rahm Emanuel, uh, who, as many people know, spent his time in office attacking unions and working to back up the police department and cover up murders and do all kinds of horrible things. Um, and then we had a new mayor elected, uh, Lori Lightfoot, and I think what we've seen is a lot of the same types of policies continue under her administration, um, but with sometimes more of a progressive veneer. Um, and that's been a challenge, for sure, in terms of, you know, building a strong uh, left to not have quite as clear of an opponent as Rom was like, you know, he said F the UAW and got in fights with people. It was a lot easier to kind of cast him as a villain um, than it has been in terms of trying to, you know, navigate the political waters of having the current administration in office. But that said, I mean, it's also opened up opportunities in terms of being able to have people um, really pushing forward policies that are an alternative to what we've seen um, from the 
you know, donor class and developer class that has been dominating city politics. So, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity. I do want to um, point out um, a couple things about Anthony Joel Quisada, because you might not be familiar uh, with him. He is a, a lifelong Chicagoan. He is a, um, a former organizer with the 35th Ward, which is where Carlos represents, and he recently won his primary for the 8th District on the Cook County Board of Commissioners. Um, so shout out Anthony. I did some work on that campaign, and I gotta say, it was not an expected victory. Anthony will, um, assuming he wins the general, which looks pretty good, uh, he uh, will uh, be the youngest representative on the Cook County Board. He's also going to be the first Democratic Socialist to serve on the Cook County Board. So, um, you know, pretty exciting. And Carlos, of course, has uh, been in office since 2015. Um, he was the first Democratic Socialist elected to the City Council, and since then we've seen, you know, a number of Socialists come into the City Council, form the caucus, as I mentioned, um, and we're going to see even more running for office. So, very excited to have them both here, and I'm going to turn it over to Carlos to give us a little bit of history about what that means, you know, having Socialists in office and how they've been able to um, operate under, under the challenges of living in a capitalist state. So, um, yeah, take it away, Carlos. Thank you so much, Miles. Uh, it's really great to be with you all here today, this beautiful Labor Day weekend. Uh, as Miles said, my name is Carlos Ramirez Rosa, and I'm the holderman of Chicago's 35th Ward, which encompasses five neighborhoods on the northwest side of the city of Chicago, uh, portions of Hermosa, Logan Square, Avondale, Irving Park, and Albany Park. Uh, if you flew into Chicago and you flew into O'Hare, it's about halfway between O'Hare Airport and downtown along the Blue Line uh, or the Kennedy Expressway. So, socialists in office, uh, it's something that we are getting accustomed to uh, as we have seen electoral success over the last several years. But it's not new to the country, it's not new to the Midwest. Uh, 100 years ago, uh, in the early 1910s and 1920s, there were over 1,200 socialist elected officials at the local level throughout the United States. Uh, these were members of the Socialist Party, and they were elected in places like Utah, they were elected in places like North Dakota, um, all across the nation, socialists were running and winning office, and there were 1,200 of them in office in 1912. In Illinois, uh, between 1900 and 1920, 54 cities and towns had socialist elected officials. So if you look at where we're at right now, uh, where I believe we have maybe two or three uh, places in Illinois that have a socialist elected official, we have a lot to do <laughs> to catch up with the socialists of the early 20th century. Um, so, in Illinois, uh, the socialists probably saw the most success in a place called Canton, Illinois, which was a mid-sized industrial city. Uh, and in the 1910s, they had a socialist majority in the city council, and they also had a socialist mayor. Uh, their electoral success was based off of the strength of the labor movement in Canton, Illinois. Canton, Illinois had lots of manufacturing, had uh, coal mines, uh, and the workers, they were radicalized. They were educating themselves, they were educating their neighbors, and through their organization, they were able to uh, succeed in capturing city government. Uh, one thing that you'll see if you read about socialists in office uh, in the early 20th century 
is that the Democrats and the Republicans love to come together to defeat socialists. Um, so you see this uh, in Canton, where uh, they would run hybrid candidates to try and defeat and oftentimes successfully defeat the socialist candidate for mayor or for alderman. Uh, you saw this in Chicago uh, in 1915. The first socialist was elected to the Chicago City Council. It was a man by the name of William Rodriguez. He was actually Hispanic, truly Hispanic from Spain. And um, he was elected to the 15th Ward, which at that point in time was uh, in and around the Humble Park neighborhood. And he served one term. At that point in time, terms in the city council were two years. So in 1917, the Democrats and Republicans came together and ran one candidate to oust him. And unfortunately, that was the end of his aldermanic career. Um, but if you look at the socialists in the early 20th century in the Midwest, the things that they were doing was fighting for public ownership. They're fighting to make sure that we had publicly owned utilities. They're fighting to make sure that we had mass transit, that we had water, that we had a city that functioned. Uh, and of course, we know the great example of the sewer socialists uh, in Milwaukee, um, who for many decades held power in Milwaukee and were known for providing good, efficient government, good services, and building up that public infrastructure. Um, we obviously had two red scares. I'm not a historian, so I'm sure there's some historians in the room that are like, Jesus, you're watching this. Um, but, but a lot of that history, right, of socialists in office in the early 20th century was lost, right? It was something that I was not aware of when I became a Democratic Socialist elected official in 2015. Um, it's not taught in our schools. Uh, oftentimes, uh, you know, it's kind of captured in this, you know, category of the progressive movement. But we don't realize that so many of the people that were fighting for workplace safety, so many of the people that were fighting to have things like the Chicago Transit Authority, they were socialists. And they were fighting for those things because they identified as socialists. And that was their struggle. And that was their cause. Um, so it's really exciting to now look at the current landscape that we find ourselves in in the city of Chicago uh, with uh, six members. Five. Do I know how to do math? Let's see. We have Andre, Jeanette. Uh, Rosanna, Daniel Byron, and myself, uh, six members of the Chicago City Council who identify as democratic socialists. And uh, the things that we're doing are very similar without knowing that we were duplicating the efforts of the democratic socialists and the socialists in office in the early 20th century. What we're doing today is very similar to what socialists were doing then. We're fighting for public ownership. We're fighting for workers' rights. We're fighting for good government. We're fighting to make sure that we have a city that works for working people, not just a rich and powerful few. We're doing things like making newsletters and distributing them door to door in our districts. Uh, that's something that the socialists in Chicago did in the 15th Ward. They had a 15th Ward socialist paper. They would go door to door. In Canton, Illinois, uh, when they were electing mayors and when they were electing a socialist city council majority in Canton, they went door to door and canvassed and spoke to people and had a local socialist paper that they distributed to educate their neighbors about uh, what they were seeking to achieve and what their platform was. So we're doing very similar things uh, in this moment in time uh, in the city of Chicago. Um, it's really remarkable uh, when you look at the fact that Chicago for many decades now has lived under neoliberal administrations. Most of my colleagues have no clue what neoliberalism is. It's just the air that they breathe. It's what the world is structured as. Um, and so they can't even begin to conceptualize that we can have a robust government that provides for the needs of people. 
They think that everything has to be privatized. That's just the way that it has to be in their world. Um, and they believe that um, that we should not be adding more public workers uh, to uh, the list of people who will get pensions. Um, they're just totally opposed to that, absolutely opposed to that. Um, so in this term, now that we have six Democratic Socialists on the Chicago City Council, we have actually succeeded in reversing the tide in cuts to the city's public mental health clinics. So that was very hard thought, um, but it shows the way in which we as Democratic Socialists are seeking to strike a blow to neoliberalism, are seeking to get government back into the business of serving working people, and to build up government's capacity to care and provide for people, um, which is something that uh, has been cut consistently decade after decade after decade. Uh, all across the nation, all across the globe, but particularly in the city of Chicago. So when it comes to the public mental health clinics, in 2011, Rahm Emanuel was elected mayor of the city of Chicago. And his first budget, yes, is um, So he was elected, um, and he set out to basically cut city government, right? He closed 50 schools. Uh, that first budget, he closed half of the city's public mental health clinics. Uh, and the city of Chicago at one point in time had a very robust public health department that provided care to people directly through publicly funded and publicly owned and operated clinics. Uh, those had been consistently cut over the last several decades. And kind of the last remaining vestige of this social safety net that cared for people that was publicly financed and publicly controlled by the city of Chicago was the city's public mental health clinics. And so Rahm Emanuel decided to do what neoliberals do, and he said, well, government can't do this well, we have to cut this service, let's privatize it, let's send people to uh, for-profit clinics. Um, and what ended up happening was that people died. People who rely on those public mental health clinics were unable to get the care that they needed once they closed, and individuals lost their lives, and many, many people suffered. Um, workers lost their jobs. Right? People were unable to pay their mortgage. Uh, and it left a void in so many communities where these public mental health clinics have been a place where people could turn to for care. And uh, during that time that Ron was seeking to close these public mental health clinics, there formed a movement, uh, the mental health movement in the city of Chicago, which fought against these closures. And they did really exciting things like occupying one of the clinics uh, to demand that it not be shuttered. Unfortunately, um, they did not succeed in that moment. Um, but out of that struggle arose the popular demand uh, that people all throughout the city of Chicago know and want, and that is that they want the public health clinics to be reopened. And so our mayor, who uh, is a neoliberal but lied to everyone and told everyone that she's very progressive on the <laughs> campaign trail, she committed to reopen the public mental health clinics. Uh, she said it very clearly. She said it time and time again on the campaign trail. But once she took office, she accepted the neoliberal line that the city could not be in direct service, that um, we had to turn to the market, that we had to turn to private providers to be able to provide this essential service to people, uh, that is to have public mental health care. So uh, socialists in the Chicago City Council this term have made it one of our key demands to reopen those public mental health clinics. And thanks to that consistent advocacy, thanks to the work of having uh, that number of socialists in city council saying this needs to happen, we will only vote for a budget if we continue to move towards reopening the public mental health clinics. 
For the first time in um, a decade, we have seen an investment in the city's public mental health clinics, a 72% increase in the staffing at the public mental health clinics. So that is a complete reversal, right? We went from cuts, we went from the public mental health clinics being on life support uh, because of the fact that um, you know the city was was hell bent on, on closing all of them and shuttering them and getting totally out of direct service. We went from that being the reality to now the city is actively reinvesting in those public mental health clinics again. And I think that we're now at a point based upon the strength of the movement in our community and based upon uh, the clarity of the socialists in office uh, that if you want our vote for this budget, you need to reopen these public mental health clinics. I think we will soon see one of those public mental health clinics reopen, at least one, maybe two. Um, so that's what socialists do in office, right? They fight for public ownership. Uh, that's what we've been doing in the city of Chicago. Um, I guess the other example that I'll give in terms of what we've been up to uh, in office is we want to shift the balance of power between the capitalist class and the working class. And we want to be able to show our communities that we don't need Donald Trump, we don't need Bruce Rauner, we don't need some billionaire asshole telling us what to do, right? If you're a working person in this country, you're at your job, there's probably some rich asshole telling you what to do, right? Uh, if you live in the city of Chicago and you see development happening in your community that's not in line with uh, what's in the best interest of your neighborhood, there's probably some rich asshole making that decision. Um, and so what we seek to do as uh, social selected officials is to build the capacity of our uh, community to govern, to have self-determination, because socialism is democracy, democracy is socialism. As an alderman, uh, you have certain powers. Um, one of them is almost total control over zoning and development in your ward. That's not written into law, but it works because we defer to each other as members of the city council. So if there's a zoning change uh, that exists uh, solely in your district, will only occur in your district, uh, then members of the city council defer to one another. And they go, all right, if that's only gonna impact your ward, then I will defer to you, and you as the elected representative of your ward get to decide what happens there. And this has been called aldermanic prerogative. In other cities, they call it member deference. And it's gotten a lot of people in trouble. Uh, people have taken bribes in exchange for zoning changes. There's legal corruption where people accept uh, big campaign contributions, thousands and thousands of dollars in exchange for a zoning change. Um, and people have gotten accustomed to this being the way that government was run in the city of Chicago, right? If you were a rich, connected developer, you cut a campaign check, you went to the Alderman's fundraiser, and then you got whatever it is that you thought you needed in that board. Um, what we have done uh, as Democratic Socialists in office is we have devolved that zoning power to the community. So uh, through community organizations, through a community-driven zoning process, we have a participatory planning process where people actually hold the reins of power and come together collectively to discuss what it is that they would like to see as it relates to that zoning change. Um, in the 35th Ward, uh, that process has basically three steps, which is one, Developers have to meet directly with community groups. These community groups have to exist uh, for the purpose of organizing the community. They can't exist solely for zoning review. Um, so they have to be a well-established community organization. Uh, so the developer has to meet directly with these uh, community groups. The community groups will ask for things like more affordability. They'll ask for things like a community benefits agreement to make sure that if there's gonna be a business opening up that it's paying a living wage uh, above what is required uh, by uh, city code. 
Um, they'll ask for things like, you know, green space, public space to be funded by the developer in exchange for this zoning change. Um, and once they come to an agreement with the developer, uh, then it goes to a community assembly to be ratified by the community as a whole. Uh, we've had meetings where 10 people show up. We've had meetings where 600 people show up, um, most notably for an all affordable housing development, um, where we use this community process to bring people together to fight for an all affordable housing development to replace an underutilized city parking lot. Uh, we've had meetings where, yeah, so when I took office in 2015, uh, there was a empty parking lot next to the Logan Square Blue Line stop. And uh, for those of you that are unfamiliar, Logan Square has seen a lot of displacement. It has been called ground zero for gentrification in the city of Chicago for quite some time. Uh, and over the last two decades, about 20,000 mostly Latino working class residents have been displaced from the community by rising rents, uh, by uh, big landlords, big developers purchasing properties and sending everyone 30-day notices uh, to leave um, the building. And um, that displacement has caused a lot of harm, right? Working people rely upon the networks that they build for survival in their communities. And when you're displaced from that community, the institutions, the networks that you've built up, they often suffer and crumble and go away. Um, or you end up in a community Right, that's much further away and you have to start from scratch, right? And oftentimes in the context of Chicago, working people go from living near a train station, living near parks, living near good paying jobs, to suddenly they find themselves in some far flung suburb, right? And now they have to rely on a car to get around, right? Now the community group that used to be down the block from them, they have nothing there that they could turn to. So uh, this displacement, this gentrification has a real negative impact. Um, and so our community said that we wanted to make sure that we were doing everything possible to address displacement. And we said that we wanted to take this underutilized parking lot and turn it into housing, turn it into homes uh, for people that were facing displacement in our community. Uh, Rahm Emanuel had other ideas. He wanted to sell it to a private developer to turn into uh, luxury housing. And uh, shortly after I took office, I asked to meet with the Department of Planning and Development to say, hey, that underutilized parking lot, let's turn it into all affordable housing. And they said, we can't do that. They said, we have to sell this piece of land to the highest bidder uh, so that the city can generate income. And then we're gonna put it on tax rolls and we're gonna make lots of uh, money off of property taxes. Uh, and that's what we needed to do, is what they told me. And I said, well, that's a legitimate public policy interest, but addressing displacement Providing housing to people is also legitimate public policy interest. And we have an opportunity to do that here with this parcel and this land. So they said, well, Alderman will only support 30% affordability on this site. I said, not good enough. We have to do 100%. Um, they said, well, how do you propose doing that? And I said, well, it sits in a TIF district. So for those of you not familiar, TIF district takes uh, property tax dollars and sequesters them so they can only be spent in that area. It's a way to balkanize the city budget. It's a way to stop uh, the city budget being used as a redistributive tool because if you create a TIF district in a very wealthy area, then guess what? That money has to stay there, right? It can't go to the west side or to the south side. It can't go uh, to uh, places where uh, they're not generating as much in property taxes. Um, so in Logan Square, there's been a TIF district for a very long time. Um, and uh, it had a lot of money uh, and that TIF money had gone to private developers, to connected developers, 
And the demand here was, well, let's use that TIF money to actually develop this site as all affordable housing, right? If this is public money, let's put it to public use and let's build some housing for working families. And so I proposed this to the Department of Planning and Development, and I kid you not, this bureaucrat that's sitting there goes like this. <laughs> <laughs> they thought I was crazy. They were like, this is insane, right? Um, because again, in their neoliberal mindset, they're thinking, of course we have to sell this to the Heisberg. Uh, so they had uh, very powerful, very rich people come and try and lobby me. I was 26 years old and I'm sitting across the table from this man that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars and he's here telling me that he wants to develop this piece of land uh, that he'll do 30% affordable. Uh, and of course, I told him no, right? We're gonna develop this as so it was a very long uh, fight, it was a very long struggle. Uh, you can uh, read about it in Jacobin. Uh, I wrote an article there about uh, the fight to win this housing. Um, but in the end, we succeeded in building that housing. Um, and it is now named Lucy Gonzalez Parsons Apartments. Lucy Parsons, a radical feminist, uh, anarchist, and socialist organizer. She lived in Avondale, uh, about a mile away from the site where this housing was built. Um, so uh, other democratic socialists have also uh, had similar success in their communities in Chicago in building all affordable housing. Uh, as a matter of fact, we are some of the few aldermen that actually champion all affordable housing and get it built in our wards. Uh, in the 25th ward, in the 40th ward, in the 33rd ward, uh, they have all had uh, these uh, similar projects uh, built uh, during this term. Uh, but mine was the first. <laughs> um, and so that was an ex so the reason I was talking about that development was because that was one through our community driven zoning process, right? We brought people together to advocate collectively that this get done, uh, and then ultimately it got done because the community said that they wanted it to get done, right? So at this meeting, we had 600 people come out, and uh, about 350 plus said they wanted the building built. Uh, immediately the way that it was proposed, there were about another 50 to 100 people that uh, liked the proposal but maybe wanted a few tweaks, and then there was a minority of people that were opposed to it being redeveloped as all affordable housing. Um, we've also had meetings where uh, everyone spoke in Spanish, the only person that spoke English was the developer, uh, and so uh, the meeting was conducted in Spanish and then things were uh, uh, translated to the developer. Uh, and in that meeting, the community said no to a luxury condo development in Hermosa, which is a mostly uh, working class community. And it's just really powerful to see working class people come together and have that power, right? To say like, this is our community and we collectively, democratically can make these decisions, right? It demystifies government for them. It's inclusive, it's transparent, it's democratic, it's socialist. And, um, what we've also done is uh, instituted participatory budgeting. So each year, every alderman gets about $1.7 million uh, to allocate for ward infrastructure improvements. Uh, it's a way of managing austerity because $1.7 million is not enough uh, to meet all the needs of our community. Um, and what a lot of aldermen do is they look to see where are the voters, right? They say, okay, this block has 20 voters. That block has five voters. Guess which block they're gonna fix? the one with 20 voters. And what does that mean? That means that blocks with more affluent, with uh, more connected people, uh, get more of those limited dollars. 
And so in the 35th Ward and in all of the uh, socialist administered wards, we have instituted participatory budgeting, where the community comes together collectively to decide how those dollars should be spent. And again, it's done in an inclusive, transparent, and democratic process so that we have equitable outcomes, so that the community knows that if a street's being done. It's not because, you know, the alderman's brother or sister live there. It's because that is what the community collectively decided was the priority for those dollars to be allocated. And in terms of proposing the ideas, And in terms of proposing the ideas as well, the community generates those ideas. Um, so, for example, uh, our schools uh, are woefully underfunded. Um, and sometimes we can use some of this capital money to invest in our schools. And working class mothers in the most working class um, area of the 35th Ward, they came together and proposed uh, that we use that money, those infrastructure dollars, to rebuild their playground uh, at their school, which had not been rebuilt in 20 years. And they went out, and these were undocumented women, so they could not vote right in our normal electoral process, uh, but they were able to actually go out and move their neighbors and organize their neighbors to support this critical project. Um, so again, it showed them right, that they are powerful, right, that they have the capacity to govern, uh, that we don't need you know, some uh, rich billionaire uh, far off somewhere telling us what's best for our communities. Um, and lastly, uh, and Anthony can talk a little bit more about this as well, is that we've also sought to use our office to build uh, power and to, and to organize. And so when Donald Trump was elected and he announced that he was going to start conducting raids and going after immigrants in our communities, we created a deportation defense network through the war office. And we actually had trainings where we taught people how to engage in civil disobedience, how to engage in cop watching, how to record and make sure that you know, you're observing ISIS in your community and make sure you get that information to the appropriate individual so that we could respond collectively as a community to that threat. Um, and then, after we knocked on thousands of doors to inform people about their rights, should ICE come to their door, uh, after we trained hundreds of people on how to identify ICE was in their community and what to do if they saw that, after we trained dozens of people uh, for civil disobedience, uh, people were actually training to like surround an ICE vehicle, and we did that through the ward office. Um, after uh, we, we had this very robust, um, you know, organizing project uh, to, to help defend our community against the threat of ICE, and that threat subsided, uh, and then when we began to see the growth in encampments, uh, the Community Defense Committee switched its focus from uh, ICE and uh, immigrant rights to defending homeless encampments. Uh, and since then, when the state has sought to come and, and you know, kick our homeless neighbors while they're down, uh, and uh, you know, conduct a raid on their encampment, uh, we have actually been able to organize people to prevent that from happening. And so during my time as alderman, uh, we have not had any raids on any encampments. We have not had uh, any encampments in the 35th Ward displaced. And we've actually been able to uh, have the community organize in that fashion uh, to, to defend those encampments. And city bureaucrats and state bureaucrats know, like, that our communities organize, and they know that like they have to, you know, approach the issue of homelessness in a very different way than they do in other parts of the city, uh, where they feel like they have a license to, you know, uh, and, uh, to raid camps and, and to displace people. Um, so I know this was kind of rambling, but I guess the key thing that I just wanted to share with you all is that um, the approach that we have towards governance uh, as democratic socialists at this moment in time in the city of Chicago is about shifting the balance of power between the capitalist class and 
working class. For us, that means using our positions to build our community's capacity to self-governance uh, so that our community sees the power that they have, to use every single opportunity that we have to uh, build that capacity in our community, whether it be through zoning or through budgetary decisions or even through things that normally a ward office wouldn't do, like responding to the threat of ICE or responding to the threat of homeless encampments being attacked. Um, what we also seek to do is uh, to pass legislation that gives uh, workers more strength, um, that gives tenants more strength, right? Because that also helps shift the balance of power between the capitalist class and the working class. So we have fought for uh, legislation to expand uh, worker protections, to expand uh, tenant protections. We have also sought to make sure that we are expanding uh, the strength of the public sector, right? And that we're getting government back into uh, the work of providing care, right? That we're combating the austerity of neoliberalism, that we're combating the privatization and the degradation of um, you know, the public sector under neoliberalism uh, and trying to bring things under uh, municipal control or trying to keep things under uh, you know, public control or uh, expand and, and better fund those things that already are. Um, so, yeah. Um, I've had the extreme honor of working with this brilliant uh, leader for the past six and a half years. Uh, I was born and raised in the actual neighborhood that Carlos is mentioning, uh, Logan Square, which faced you know, historic levels of displacement and gentrification, um, my family being uh, impacted by that, my neighbors, uh, family, uh, you know, we saw rents you know, skyrocketing, landlords being able to kick up somebody's rent $1,000 or sell their building, uh, and that being completely legal. Uh, which was clearly unsustainable and immoral. Um, and uh, before working at Carlos's office, actually, uh, when I was a teen, I interned at uh, an office, another aldermanic office, who was a horrible, corrupt, neoliberal alderman by the name of Joe Moreno, and is a, uh, a great example of what Carlos mentioned earlier of this pay-to-play politics. Um, when I interned at his office, uh, one time we held a completely farce of a community meeting regarding a zoning change uh, in my community for a building. Uh, luxury development, it was just going to be pure luxury, I think it was 10% affordable housing units. Um, and at this meeting, 150 people came and they were all against this development proposal. Um, even one of my neighbors, and I, lo I love sharing this story because this is how powerful it was and I think this is what shifted me and definitely pushed me to be a very active socialist in my community. Um, somebody, one of my neighbors, stood up in that meeting and confronted the ald alderman and said, you know, Alderman Joe Moreno, you took $10,000 from the luxury developer Rob Bono. I will cut you a check right now for $10,000 for you to deny this zoning change. And everybody erupted into applause. And my, mind you, I was an intern for this alderman and I saw my neighbors right, all organizing against this development. I said, I am on the wrong side here. There's something going on here. And after this meeting, uh, me, that alderman, and his chief of staff were walking outside, and he turned to me, the alderman turned to me and his chief of staff, and said, we have to hold off the decision of our zoning change until after the election. Because he basically knew that everyone was against it, that it was going to be severely unpopular, but that if they had announced their approval of the zoning change, that they were going to lose the election. So they hid it. Um, and once I heard that, literally my heart like dropped to my feet. I ran home, <laughs> cried to my mom, and I said, I'm working for the wrong person here. I stormed into that office three days later after not reporting to work. I had a lot of time to think, uh, and I quit. 
and I told him that I was going to run against them. Um, <laughs> I didn't run against him, but I did uh, make sure I organized to make him lose in 2019. Um, and he lost to a socialist. He lost to a socialist, yeah. <laughs> it was a very sweet victory. It was like defeating uh, like a horcrux, so like stabbed them. Like, um, and, um, but in, after that, I, you know, uh, and having that experience with a, a neoliberal, you know, administration and aldermen and staff, quite frankly, um, because for folks who don't, do not know, an aldermanic office is responsible for distributing basic constituent services, which are city services. So in the city of Chicago, we have a very robust bureaucratic network and system, right? You can call through and one to report street lights out, potholes, and Chicagoans are very, very anal about having their city services, and rightfully so. I think all people deserve robust constituent services and city services. And I'm glad that we have such a high standard in the city of Chicago, but uh, neoliberalism is definitely holding back our potential from being the socialist utopia that we believe Chicago can be. Um, but nonetheless, uh, when I was working at that other aldermanic office, you know, those people were not invested in community. They were not embedded in social movements. They weren't thinking uh, critically about how we could use the office as a vehicle, right, to support grassroots movements or for social transformation. Um, but ever since working under uh, Alderman Rosa's office, uh, we have used our office to do exactly that. We've used it as a vehicle for grassroots uh, organizing in the community uh, to mobilize support and resources for, so for social movements. Uh, and we've also included uh, political education and analysis in our constituent services, um, as well as all of our staff, our active organizers, former organizers, uh, tenant organizers, were in union leadership or as a union steward. Um, so we've definitely developed a like movement bureaucracy where like our people are not just bureaucrats punching in you know service requests, but they're also like embedded in the community, you know, organizing and also building connections with other organizations and offices across the city, right? We're like actively like organizing. Um, in regards to the political education uh, and analysis behind our constituent services, and the reason why I'm explaining this is I'm explaining um, my role in terms of working under Alden Rosa being a, my personal experience working in a, in a socialist uh, aldermanic office is very early on um, we identified this issue that like a lot of city service requests in the city of Chicago are severely backlogged like you put in a tree trimming request in Chicago it takes one year for the Bureau of Forestry to come out and cut that tree and in some cases like there's a problem with the tree the tree is very big or it's in front of like a senior citizen's home and that tree should be cut within two weeks or three weeks, but instead, like, we have a horrible, you know, Bureau of Forestry. Or you order a garbage cart, and it takes six months. Uh, you put in a pothole request, and it takes four. What's that? I said you order it in six months, and then behind the rats are having a party. Right, exactly, because your garbage cans are have holes in them, where the lid is broken, all sorts of different things, right? Uh, and so there is this, like, crumbling of our, like, public service system, and uh, the reason for that has been like 40 years of like neoliberalism and austerity and budget cuts, right? Um, and we include that in our conversations with people, right? We don't just tell people, oh, your garbage can's gonna take six months. Sometimes we'll just say, we'll let them know the timeline. But for others who are very engaged and want to learn more as to why and are open to the conversation, we explain the failures of neoliberalism and how it, it is insufficient in providing the resources and services that communities need to thrive. And we tell them this for three reasons uh, why I, I wrote out. Uh, there's one, how neoliberalism, neoliberalism fails to do that. Two, 
um, so that they can demand uh, the political leadership necessary to combat neoliberalism and in turn have the services that they need. And then three, to understand that our office is actively on their side and working uh, towards that change, right? So because a lot of times they'll just call and they think that you, they'll, they'll literally, literally tell me like, I am the reason why their tree's not getting trimmed. And I'm like, no, like it's the backlog of these departments and the inefficiencies, you know, inefficiencies and the lack of like, um, you know, the workforce to get it done. And like, and I'll say, and Alderman Rosa isn't city council like working to change that, right? And they'll, oh, okay, so I have to shift my, my frustration from this ward office to like this larger thing, the city council, right? Um, also, uh, as um, Alderman Rosa mentioned, uh, we um, utilize our office to um, support grassroots initiatives like the Community Defense Committee um, in you know, supporting and protecting uh, immigrants from the threat of deportations and raids. Um, some of the workshops that we did um, under the CDC is we did political education around the, the need to abolish ICE and connecting that to capitalism and saying like, look, like, if we want to really combat these racist like immigration policies, we need to have like a class analysis of how like the government really profits off of deportations and of the jailing of immigrants and whatnot. Um, we've also used our office uh, like at the onset of the COVID pandemic uh, to work with local neighbors and organizations uh, to establish mutual aid networks. Uh, we even developed like a comprehensive pandemic uh, resource guide and went door to door uh, with that. Uh, uh, to get uh, vital information uh, and resources to our most vulnerable neighbors. Um, and we had all these like check-in meetings. Uh, we supported like from the grassroots, the development of these uh, you know, neighborhood-based mutual aid organizations. Um, we've also used, as Carlos also mentioned, uh, our office to support uh, organizing for affordable housing. Uh, that, that project that Carlos was talking about was the result of like six or seven years. How long was it for um, the Lucy Parsons Department? It was six years. Six years. Um, so I think that's like really, really important like model that I, I'm very eager to figuring out how we share that with others, uh, other municipal offices or any really legislative office can think creatively about how they use the resources that they have, the public resources that they have in their budget um, to support grassroots organizing. And you know, we're not ever breaking the law, we're not supporting electoral organizing in any way, we're just supporting the development uh, and functions of grassroots organizing in our community, which I think creates a culture of democracy, participatory democracy, uh, and in turn like sh shifts the way people expect their like government office offices to operate. Like, other communities look to us and they say, I want community-driven zoning development. I want, or we want, right, participatory budgeting, right? We want to see more affordable housing, right? Um, and, and in turn, that will create the political change necessary to, uh, in those respective wards. Um, outside of the work that we've done as an office, another very important role to the development of socialism, municipal socialism in Chicago, has been the development of independent political organizations, also known as IPOs. IPO started in the 80s um, during the Harold Washington era as a way of combating um, the very entrenched and powerful party politics of the Democratic machine. Um, it sought to, uh, you know, run and support and hold accountable, uh, you know, grassroots candidates uh, across the city. Um, it, the only real kind of uh, organizations that lasted from that era are the 22nd Ward IPO, what else, the 12th Ward maybe? Um, this is the 22nd Ward, right? So there has just been one IPO that really has held it down um, since then. Um, but the introduction of the socialist IPOs, or I think the more grassroots 
uh, development of IPOs has started in 2015. Um, after Carlos ran and won in 2015, we started an organization called United Neighbors of the 35th Board, which our comrade Matt <laughs> is wearing a shirt. Um, thank you, Matt. Uh, and uh, this has just been a, so an IPO is an organization that is regionally based within a ward, right? So United Neighbors of the 35th Ward solely organizes, or did at one point, just within the 35th Ward. Now it's expanding. Um, but we cover a whole range of organizing projects, right? Electoral organizing, issue-based organizing, community organizing, youth organizing, political education. Um, we use it as a tool of bringing average day, you know, working class people into the political process and into also the, the functions of the ward office because then we let people know about PV or, you know, community-driven zoning development or the CDC, et cetera, right? We found a way to kind of have this amazing balance of uh, this political organization that uh, not only holds Carlos accountable, but to practice and model co-governance. Um, a lot of people in our communities, when they meet an elected official for the first time, they're flabbergasted, or they are like, "Oh my God, what a what a great honor to be in front of like somebody who's usually just at like a cocktail party or something with uh, rich donors." Like Carlos comes to every one of our membership meetings. He talks to all of our members. He is one of us. He's not some sort of far-fetched and untouchable, you know, elected official. He is of and by the grassroots, and we are there with him. Uh, and I think that's been a very powerful model for Carlos to be in city council and to come back to our organization, let us know, you know, what are some vulnerable spots that we can advance and struggle, or for us in the community organizing the 35th Ward to let Carlos know about an issue that's happening. Um, and those IPOs, uh, there are a couple IPOs that I have been practicing, kind of like a more socialist model of organizing that's been United Neighbors of the 35th Ward, the 33rd Ward Working Families, which elected uh, Rosano Rodriguez in 2019, uh, and the 25th Ward IPO, which elected uh, Byron Sichel Lopez in 2019 as well. Um, and it is because of that I IPO structure, and especially in United Neighbors of the 35th Ward, um, that served as kind of like a vehicle and catalyst and ultimately the like, spear of my campaign uh, running for Cook County Commissioner. Um, so after working in the ward office for six and a half years, and I'm still there today, I'll finish up my tenure in, in, at the end of November, um, but I ran against a very corrupt eight-year incumbent by the name of Luis Arroyo Jr., who in his tenure as a commissioner has served as a corporate lobbyist. Uh, he is under a federal investigation for his lobbying activities. His father, who was a state representative, is on his way to prison for corruption and bribery. Um, you know, we looked at this failure of leadership because he did nothing with his position. Um, for folks who do not know, the Cook County Board of uh, Commissioners is a very vital um, government body and provides uh, in, in Cook County um, and provides a lot of resources that poor and working class people across our county rely on. Uh, we have one of the largest hospital and healthcare systems, uh, also kind of known as the Cook County uh, Health System, uh, one of the largest providers of Medicaid, which is known as County Care. Uh, it is home to the Cook County Forest Preserve System, which is about 70,000 acres of forests, wetlands, prairies, uh, and is home to also the Cook County Jail System, which is one of the largest carceral systems in the country. So when we're, when we're talking about things like universal health care, or a Green New Deal, or prison abolition, um, there's a very powerful platform to do that at the Cook County Board of Commissioners. And so um, after you know, seeing the, the ravaging effects of COVID-19 on our community, I said, you know what, it's, it's time for me to step up. I'll never forget this conversation I had with Carlos and he had a check with me. He's like, 
how are you doing? And I was like, I, I just can't keep sitting in the office punching in pothole requests as much as I'd love to do that. Um, we need to win more political power for working class people and for our socialist movement in order to see the changes that we know is possible and necessary. Um, so we uh, organized this campaign. We built a very powerful coalition of uh, working class political organizations, the IPOs on the Northwest side, uh, citywide political organizations uh, like Chicago DSA, United Working Families, the People's Lobby, um, as well as progressive and le le uh, leftist uh, elected officials across the city of Chicago, and lastly, um, progressive labor unions like the County College Teachers Union and the Illinois Nurses Association. And on June 28th, uh, we won our election with 35% of the vote in a five-day race, uh, with the incumbent coming in at second place with 19%. Um, so, I mean, that was uh, historic. You know, I'm going to be the youngest commissioner in county history, the first socialist, uh, and a couple other things. But um, what's more important is that, like, working class people have a seat at the table at the county board. And um, some of the things that I want to talk about or do at the county board uh, and accomplish is how are we using the Cook County healthcare system as a model uh, for universal healthcare? How are we fighting for a Green New Deal in Cook County to protect our forest preserves and preserve them and expand them, but to also create uh, thousands of union paid jobs? Um, how are we uh, building uh, more affordable housing? Uh, how are we addressing the crisis of, of, uh, of homelessness? How are we tackling poverty? Um, these are not conversations that you hear enough on about at the county board. Um, the county board, just like the city of Chicago, has this uh, unhealthy obsession with progressive taxation, relying on property taxes. Um, so I want to make sure that the county is playing a leading role in taxing the rich, uh, making them pay their fair share, and also modeling something that I think we also haven't seen, and that is a, a very strong and, and collaborative relationship between county elected officials, municipal elected officials, and even state and congressional elected officials, because something that is really unique about the June 20 Democratic primary that we just won is that we won it as a full ticket um, from the top. Uh, we had a congressional candidate by the name of Delia Ramirez who ran on a platform for Medicare for All, Green New Deal, you know, canceling student loan debt, to uh, progressive uh, state senators, to a progressive and socialist um, state representative, I just called her out, her name is Lily Jimenez, <laughs> uh, and to, you know, county board commissioners like myself, and then all the way down to our, you know, um, city council members like Carlos and Rosana. So quite literally on the northwest side, from the bottom to the top, we have progressive and leftist elected officials who are choosing to work together collaboratively in coalition, and not just as the elected officials, but also in relationship to our bases, and to use our offices to continue growing our bases. Uh, and, um, and yeah, we have a couple of really interesting uh, projects down the line um, that we're working on together, uh, including a like democratic and transparent uh, mayoral endorsement process because uh, you know our municipal elections are, are coming up and we have a couple of people who are saying that they're running as progressives. Uh, and instead of just individually us as elected officials choosing to endorse them, uh, we're looking to do that collaboratively and in, in dialogue. Uh, with our, our basis so that we can move together as a unit. So we're already modeling larger structures of co-governance uh, and organizing that we have not seen historically in our community. Or in, if we did see them, it was for the wrong reasons, right? We saw corrupt elected officials working together behind the scenes, completely anti-democratic, and in, you know, in the cahoots with developers to advance their you know, screwed up agenda. So there's a lot of exciting things that are happening, <laughs> uh, to say the least. Uh, but I do want to be cognizant of our time, and I will stop there. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.